ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins, minerals, and phytonutrients needed for optimal health. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line based on the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research that closes the nutrient gap so you can feel and perform your best. Unlike most supplements, which use cheap synthetic ingredients your body can't absorb, our products are made with clinician-grade, bioavailable ingredients that make a real and noticeable difference. We have a full range of products, from the most advanced multivitamin and phytonutrient formula on the market, to a blend of eight organic superfood mushrooms, including reishi, chaga, and lion's mane, to a highly absorbable liquid D3K2 dropper. Our newest product is BioAvail Omega Plus, a blend of ultra-pure fish oil and the most bioavailable forms of curcumin and black seed oil in a single two soft gel serving. Fish oil, curcumin, and black seed oil are renowned for their powerful health benefits. But until now, they've only been available in separate products, which means higher cost and a lot of pills. BioVail Omega Plus gives you a natural and effective way to improve joint and muscle health, boost exercise performance and recovery, elevate mood and mental clarity, and regulate immune function. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T, naturals.com to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you followed my work for any length of time, you'll know that I'm an advocate of omnivorous diets that include animal products. I think research and evolutionary biology indicate that that is the best option for most people. And I've spent a lot of time over my career debunking the myths and misconceptions surrounding a 100% plant-based diet. I've had five appearances on the Joe Rogan Show specifically on this topic, speaking with Joe directly and debating various people. Uh, I've written tens of articles on my website, had several podcast episodes with people in the regenerative agriculture movement, nutritional specialists, uh, talking about the advantages of and the higher bioavailability of nutrients uh, in animal products in general, and so many other uh, topics in this world. So I'm really excited to welcome Jane Buxton as my guest today. She's a Canadian-British author who is an active supporter of the Real Food Campaign and Public Health Collaboration, and she has written a phenomenal book called The Great Plant-Based Con, which provides one of the best overviews of all of the issues surrounding a plant-based diet. Not just nutrition, but also the environmental and ethical and moral arguments. So it's a fantastic primer for somebody that's less familiar with this topic. It's also uh, got a lot of new recent research, so it's a great read even if you are familiar with this topic. And in this show, we're going to talk about a lot of what's in the book, the discussion around nutrients, anti-nutrients, protein quality, different biologic needs, and evidence of harm from plant-based diets. But we're also going to talk about the environmental arguments, methane and emissions, land use, biodiversity, regenerative agriculture, and just touch briefly on the ethical and moral arguments as well. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. Let's dive in. Jane, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. So you and I share something in common, which is a skepticism around the benefits, both nutritional and environmental, of plant-based diet. I've uh, had the pleasure of going on Joe Rogan's show five different times to talk about this and debate various people on this topic. So, of course, when I saw your book come out and read it, I wanted to have a conversation with you. So what led you to write this book in the first place, given all of the crazy noise there is out there on this topic? Yeah, well, actually, your appearance on Joe Rogan debating, or if you could call it that, because he he didn't really follow the rules of debate, James Wilkes, about um, uh, Game Changers, was one of the things that prompted me to think seriously about this. And around that time, I had already been thinking, this debate is really um, very one-sided. It's out of control. There was uh, the narrative uh, in favor of plant-based was getting so strong. This is sort of mid to to late 2019. Game Changers came out. You and other people debated the the merits of that film and did a great job, I think. And I, but I still kept hearing people around me, particularly young people saying that they, they really thought there was something to that. You know, and it worried me as a mother, as a of young, you know, people in the kids in their 20s, as a concerned citizen. I thought we really have to pump up the noise on the other side. We have to get we have to get some facts on the table. So I um, I took what was at the time a kind of personal research project and made it into uh, decided to put it into a book. And funnily enough, my agent, when I first took him the proposal, he said, because I I had an agent from previous work, he said, I don't think the world is ready for this book. And and then he said, and I'm not sure you can write it. So he said, go away and prove to me that you can write it. So I then went back and did a 130 page proposal stuffed full of quite a lot of the facts that eventually ended up in the book. And he was just gobsmacked and he'd never heard any of this stuff before, which of course nobody in the reading mainstream media would have heard it. So anyway, he gave it the green light and, and, and there we go. Project was born. Great. Well, I'm sure we have lots to talk about, but let's start with just a broad overview from your perspective of why plant-based exclusively plant-based diets are not the best option for human health. Uh, I think of this in terms of three or four key main points. So I think about nutrients, anti-nutrients, protein, and ultra-processed food. And each of those topics um, influences, you know, the question of whether or not a plant-based diet is best for health. So if we start with nutrients, I think it's very clear that animal source foods have certain nutrients which are simply lacking in pure plant-based diets. So things like preformed vitamin A, DHA, EPA, uh, B12 is a big one. And I know you've written a lot about B12. I learned a lot from, from your pieces on that. Heme iron, taurine, you know, you could, you could go on and list it. And then there are other nutrients which are maybe found in plants, but in not the right form or not in the quantities that we might want. So I'm thinking about iodine and zinc leucine, lysine, those kinds of things. So a lot of these nutrients are things that people don't think of on on an everyday basis. Maybe they think of vitamin D, vitamin A, I don't know. But I think it's important that people understand that to get all of those nutrients, you really do have to 
include animal source foods in your diet. So that's the, the thing about the quantity of nutrients. There's also the whole question of bioavailability, absorption rates for these things. And again, this is some, something I don't think a lot of people think about. So they'll look at two sources of iron, for instance, and think, oh, well, you know, I'm getting the same amount from each. But there's been some very interesting work done on showing the bioavailability of those things. So for instance, Lily Nichols, the, um, who, who's fantastic, I think, and writes about nutrients for pregnancy. She showed that you would, I think to get this same iron into your body, absorbed by your body, uh, that you could get from an ounce of clams, you'd have to eat 57 cups of broccoli. So this is the kind of thing you're up against if you're trying to eat plant-based. You're going to have to eat mountains of this of these foods, right? It's a similar comparison with calcium. It's like 16 cups of spinach to get the same bioavailable calcium yeah. that's in one glass of milk um, in yeah. dairy products. So it's yeah. let's linger on this for, for a second because I think it's one of the biggest um, misconceptions out there is, and, and you know, in most cases, it's it's the fault of the public health establishment not really getting this message across. I mean, most people don't take any nutrition classes in school. So how would they know? If they go into a supermarket, they look at a food label on a mm. particular food, and they just assume that they're going to be absorbing 100% of whatever's listed on that label. But in mm -hmm. reality, as we know, it's far from 100%. Even the most bioavailable foods, it's not going to be 100%. Yeah, even from meat, you don't get 100% Exactly, iron. you're not getting yeah. the whole amount. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with plant-based forms of many nutrients, like you mentioned, carotene's a good example. We, uh, they're listed as vitamin A on food labels, whereas they're just a precursor to retinol, which is what really actually performs the functions of vitamin A. And yes, carotene's may have some benefits on their own as phytonutrients, but they don't fulfill the, the, the essential functions of vitamin A. And so people look and say, oh, carrots, they have, you know, such and such amount of vitamin A. And then they're one of the people that either is very poor at converting carotenes to retinol or doesn't do it at all, uh, which mm -hmm. there are some of, as you know. And that's before we even start talking about things like disrupted gut microbiome, <clears throat> intestinal permeability that, that interfere with absorption of nutrients that almost, mm -hmm. you know, that a very large percentage of people are dealing with in this day and age. And so I've, I really have come to believe that this is one of the foundational health issues of our time is mm -hmm. nutrient deficiency, pure and simple. We, we tend to think it's something that only affects the developing world, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. you, you are correct. And I do think it's a failure of public health bodies because how would people know? How are they expected to even find out? Uh, public health bodies, all they need to do is simply put a message so that people then investigate further, but they don't even do that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you touched on, uh, so the first one was nutrients. We talked a little bit yeah. about that, and we all, that also sort of a Venn diagram into anti-nutrients because, yeah. as you pointed out, you know, or as we've just been alluding to, the bioavailability of nutrients in plant foods tends to be lower than in animal foods. So one, and one, one of the main reasons for that is anti-nutrients. So talk a little bit about that and how that impacts this discussion. Yeah, so uh, typical um, uh, anti-nutrients that I talk about are things like phytic acid, which will prevent the absorption 
of um, zinc. So there are some very interesting studies showing how much phytic acid you uh, um, zinc you will absorb oysters eaten on their own um, versus oysters eaten with a corn tortilla. And it's practically zero with this, the corn tortilla, right? So all of these anti-nutrients um, get in the way of absorption in some way. So with oxalates, it's also calcium, but they also have other harmful effects. So I think with something like oxalates, which is um, which is maybe the most commonly understood um, anti-nutrient, I think there's becoming a, a greater level of awareness around that, partly because of Sally uh, Sally Norton's great work, her book on this. You know, it it will get in the way of absorption, but it will also possibly give you kidney stones because of the overload of that anti-nutrient. Um, arthritic joints is another common reaction to that. And yet people don't know why they might be feeling these things because if they go to a doctor, doctors generally are not gonna, the first thing they're gonna say is certainly not, oh, let's investigate your oxalate levels, right? Because the lack of understanding is so widespread. But these are very real anti-nutrients, phytic acid, lectins, um, oxalates. And another one that I think of as an anti-nutrient, although it's not spoken of in this way, is linal excess omega-6 linoleic acid, which gets in the way of absorption of, of omega-3. And we know that um, we need omega-3. We know that the level of omega-6 versus omega-3, the ratio has become much greater over the past uh, 50 years, and that the level of omega-6 is in our adipose, our fat tissue, as it were, is, is I think, about um, something like 20 to 1 now, 20% versus 9%, 15 years ago, something like that. And this is having a, a, a dramatic effect on our health as well. And there are people who've written very convincingly about the vegetable oil linoleic acid overload being one of the primary drivers of ill health. I think there's a lot to uh, be said for those um, theories. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, anecdotally, I can, I have had so many patients over my 15 year career that find that seed oil is one of the most offensive ingredients to their health in, in the sense that, yeah, even even more than sugar. Like if they go to a restaurant and they eat a lot of foods that are cooked in seed, rancid seed oil, they feel worse even than eating sugar. And and there really hasn't been a lot of research done on these subjective factors. There's definitely been some studies looking at seed oils and cardiovascular disease and other conditions. But some of the more interesting recent research to me is the observation of how seed oils seem to affect the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And as we know, then the gut microbiome affects just about everything else. Then we now have studies correlating it with everything from cardiovascular disease to diabetes to, you know, cognitive dysfunction, mood disorder, skin problems, <laughs> hormone disruption. I mean, you name it, the gut is connected. So if the seed oils are disrupting the gut microbiome, then they're having this uh, systemic effect for mm -hmm. on everything else. I want to go back to something you said about the lack of awareness around nutrient deficiency, nutrient inhibitors in mm. the medical and mainstream community. Because again, I think this is an elephant in the room situation where if somebody goes to the doctor and they say, I'm tired, I'm not sleeping very well, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit depressed or anxious, I 
look at this, my skin, I've got this skin rash here, my digestion's not, you know, so, so, so what's that, what's going to happen there is, okay, you go to the gastroenterologist to talk about your digestion and I'll give you an antidepressant for the depression and not really sure what to do about the fatigue. Maybe you should drink more coffee and here's a sleeping pill for, you know, for the sleep issues. Yeah. It's this phrase WNL, we're not looking. So neither the neither the patient nor the clinician in that situation is thinking what is what could be a common factor that is leading to all of these different symptoms and signs and manifestations. Ah, it's probably nutrient deficiency because we know from statistics that the vast majority of people are not getting enough of not just one but several essential nutrients. That thought process in my experience rarely happens in the conventional medical system whether you're talking about uk us canada australia any it, really any country in the world i'm not aware of that being on people's radar screen typically not unless you find a very special doctor you're obviously one of those or you know there there are functional medicine practitioners around who who, who practice this but yeah it's very very hard to find and there's another thing which is preventing awareness, which is, and this is this is a bit of a link to the the other sort of bad guy that I say is lurking in a plant-based diet, which is ultra-processed food. Because if there's one thing that's in in ultra-processed food in ubiquitous amounts, it's it's seed oils, right? They're very basic. I mean, try picking up anything in a package that doesn't have seed oils in it. It's very very hard to find. So with ultra-processed foods you're getting this double whammy of poor nutrients, all kinds of chemical additives, plus this extra overload of seed oils. And that's why I think, you know, the, the, the new types of ultra processed vegan foods, which are being pushed on the market and, or launched at the market and in great number, that's an additional burden that they're putting on our health. It's, it's that seed oil content, uh, which is so, so damaging. Yeah. And these are, damaging from two different perspectives. First are just the impact of eating oxidized rancid oils that are, these are polyunsaturated fats that are highly unstable when you apply heat, which of course in the applications that they're typically used, restaurant foods or fried foods or things like that, heat, a lot of heat has been applied and, and those, those become rancid and they're, we know now that those can have a lot of negative effects. The other side of that, though, is just the fact that seed oils are virtually devoid of nutrients. You know, some some have a meaningful amount of vitamin E, but that's really about it. And it's questionable how much vitamin E you're going to get when you're eating rancid, you know, uh, fried <laughs> vegetable oils anyhow. And they now comprise such a large percentage of calories that the average American takes in that you're, if you're, if a large percentage of your calories is devoid of nutrients, then you're displacing. It's that displacement, which is key, actually. And displacement is another big problem with the plant-based diet on its own, because if you're taking out meat, dairy, eggs, and fish, and putting something else in, which is less nutrient-dense, you are displacing all the nutrients, as you say, in general, in your diet. Yeah. It's a, I mean, that's, it's, a, it's a big one, especially when you consider that 60% of the calories the average American consumes now come from ultra-processed, ultra-refined foods. So you could look at that as 60% displacement, <laughs> essentially, yeah. of like 60% of the calories people are eating don't have any nutrition in them. 
And is it any wonder we're suffering from the epidemic of chronic disease that, that we're facing now? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like a how could it not be that way situation. You know, I always tell people, people ask me often, like, should, do I need to completely eliminate grains or, you know, uh, foods like that from my diet? And I, my, typically, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not super rigid around that. You know, I think especially if people can properly prepare them, soak them overnight, um, you know, to re- unlock, to reduce some of the phytic acid content, anti-nutrients, and unlock some of the nutrition. But what I say is they should never displace more nutrient dense foods uh, in in a significant way. Meaning like, yeah, if you have a few servings a week and you're still eating organ meats and meats and fish and eggs and dairy products and all the more nutrient dense foods, you'll probably be able to get away with that just fine. But if, if those foods comprise the bulk of your calories as they tend to on a 100% plant-based diet, if you think of like a quinoa or brown rice bowl with you know, lots and lots of vegetables and not much protein and not, no animal products, then that's, gonna, that's also going to be a displacement, even though that's a much healthier diet, of course, we, we would both agree, than the uh, 60% processed and refined food diet. You're still going to have problems, potentially, even with that whole food plant-based diet. Yeah, and I think those problems build up over time and maybe we can get to that later in the interview about um you know why it is that some people seem to do okay on that diet and and one of the factors may be that these problems build up over time and the nutrient deficiencies i mean you've written about b12 deficiency taking sometimes five years or more to to show up right so that that's what happens and and people who have this honeymoon period thinking, oh, I'm getting everything I want. I feel great. I've been doing this six months or a year and I feel fantastic. It can set in. Yeah, let's talk. Let's just talk about that now because I think it's, it's pretty relevant. I have a lot of clinical experience with this, having treated many patients who were transitioning from a plant-based diet to an animal foods diet who came to see me specifically for help with that because they knew about my work and they also knew about my personal story, having done a, ma- a raw food vegan macrobiotic diet myself and experienced the consequences of that and then transitioned back um, myself. But I- I've seen the full range of responses. You know, there are certainly people out there who can thrive on a plant-based diet for many years. And we, you know, and I think many of those people are supplementing very carefully and they're very well educated about what nutrients they need to supplement with, like B12 or DHA, some of the other examples that you used earlier on. Uh, the, the example I often use is Rich Roll, you know, who's an u- ultra, ultra marathoner, I think, or, you know, just an incredible athlete and has done very well over the years on a plant-based diet. But he's, I think he and people like him are, if we, if we have a whole spectrum, <laughs> you know, they're on the very far end of the spectrum. There aren't very many people like that out there. And then you have people who fall apart within weeks of a plant-based diet and everything in between those, those two yeah, ends absolutely. of the spectrum. And then you have something in between, which is, uh, let's not forget the Cheegans, the cheaters. So they right. say they're vegan, but they're not. <laughs> so they're claiming a benefit for the vegan diet, which is not really true. I met someone the other day who said they, they're, you know, I've, and I've heard the variations of this over the years. Like I'm a vegetarian that eats chicken and fish or I'm a... <laughs> 
you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a meat vegan. Someone even said I'm a meat, I'm a meat vegan, which, and, and Mark Hyman has kind of perpetuated this to some degree. I love that guy, but the, this idea of like, you know, eating meat and then just a whole bunch of plants on top of that. But you're not, that's not what we're talking about here because those people are going to be getting meaningful amounts of nutrients from the animal products that they're consuming. Maybe not the optimal amount. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Vitamin C is a critical nutrient for immune function and antioxidant protection. Yet most people don't get enough in their diet, and most vitamin C supplements contain synthetic forms, GMO, sugar, or allergens like soy or corn. This is why I recommend whole food forms of vitamin C, which contain the full spectrum of vitamin C activity without GMOs or other junk. And my favorite whole food vitamin C product is Essential C from Paleo Valley. It's made with three of the most potent vitamin C-rich superfoods on the planet, one of which is 120 times more potent than an orange. Nothing synthetic, no weird questionable ingredients, just food. Right now they're offering my community an exclusive 15% off discount. Just go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. So let's talk a little bit about what those factors are. I mean, we, we already alluded to one, which is the capacity to convert precursor nutrients into the full active forms of those nutrients, which ironically depends on the presence of many nutrients <laughs> because yeah. each enzyme in that pathway has, you know, requires nutrients to function properly. Yeah. So that was the vitamin A conversion. I I've also read a little bit about the different enzymes um, in the stomach that allow you to process different kinds and quantities of carbohydrate, right? We all have different levels of those. And if you're on a what is almost necessarily a high carbohydrate diet if you're on a vegan diet because you're consuming all these beans and pulses and you know um, quinoa. If you're not one of those people that has the right amount of, uh, and quality of the enzymes to process them, you're going to feel that gastric distress pretty quickly. And that's one of the most common complaints that you hear about is, gosh, bloating, gastrointestinal distress, right? I bet you hear that a lot from people. Uh, that's where it hits people first almost. So they don't feel great. They don't feel full of energy and they don't feel um, comfortable. As for 
other mechanisms, I think we're just uh, beginning to explore them, um, beginning to try and get a handle on them because there isn't much research being directed at this for the reason that there isn't much research directed at balancing out the plant-based narrative in general. It's in nobody's interest to do it, right? So uh, I'm not holding my breath for any of these wonderful studies to come out soon that show why certain people do well on a vegan diet or, or not. Yeah. Because they, they'd actually have to be on that diet. Yeah. My take just from the research and also my clinical experience is it's the the conversion is the is a big one and especially because the conversion relies on nutrients that many people who are consuming plant-based diet are likely to be low in so it's a vicious cycle a type of thing mm -hmm. another one is nutrient synergy which is related but somewhat distinct where we know that in in order to absorb certain, certain nutrients you you need other nutrients to be present. You know, there are all kinds of synergistic relationships like this with magnesium and vitamin D and copper and iron and vitamin C and iron. And so, you know, if you're not getting adequate levels of certain nutrients in your diet, even if you're consuming enough of the other ones, you will still end up being biologically deficient in those nutrients. And then as you, as we've talked about, just the high presence of anti-nutrients that interfere with absorption in all of these different cases. So these things can just manifest differently in different people depending on their gut microbiome, their nutrient status going into the plant-based diet, genetics, epigenetics, like you said, like lots of factors that we don't fully understand. But, but I've been doing this for long enough to uh, say it with certainty that there's a wide distribution of how that works. And, and here's the, the real problem with it. Let's say someone is eating a standard American or standard British diet, mm -hmm. both of which tend to be pretty bad, pretty nutrient deficient. And then, and they feel great. Let's say they then transition to a plant-based diet and they feel great for the first few months. Well, that feeling great is often more about what was removed not what was added. <laughs> they've taken out sugar, they've taken out processed and refined flour, they've taken out industrial seed oils, they've taken out a lot of other processed and refined foods, and they're eating whole, fresh food. So that's almost certainly going to be a win for most people. And then maybe six months later, they start to feel poorly. Very few people are going to make the connection to feeling poorly to the change to the plant-based diet, because what looms largest in their mind is the improvement that they had when they initially switched from the standard American diet to the plant-based diet. And so when they feel worse later, what I've seen tend to happen is doubling down. Like, oh, yeah. because I had the improvement when I switched to the initial plant-based diet, maybe that's wearing off and I need to go further. I need to go to the raw food diet or I need to go to the, you know, whatever the variation is instead of realizing that it could take, you know, it just took six months for the, the nutrient deficiencies to, to really take hold. Again, yeah, yeah. this is a lack of education on this issue and the public narrative. And it's not for want of high profile vegans speaking very eloquently about just that process. So I'm thinking of Leara Keith. Right. 10 years ago, wrote her fantastic book. No, longer than that, actually, 14 years ago, wrote her great book, The Vegetarian Myth. And she talks about how 
she doubled down, you know, she, and she was told by the vegan community, you're not vegan enough. That's why. And it even got when she stopped menstruating, there were excuses given that she didn't need to menstruate because vegans don't need to menstruate. Mm -hmm. So there are all kinds of uh, fabricated stories that we can wrap around that, that whole transition to plant-based. And you're right. It's, I don't know what the answer is because general education levels are so poor about this. The only thing that will help is people like you, people like me, like Liera, just banging the drum continually and keeping that message going and hoping it spreads a little wider every time. Yeah. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the environmental argument because there are people out there who actually maybe may even accept everything that we've said so far in terms of the nutritional benefits of including meat and animal products in the diet but for either i mean these are these are separate but related topics environmental or moral or ethical issues they choose to follow a plant-based diet so um and and then of course we see all of these celebrity celebrities you know who have turn vegan and and largely be, because they claim that it's going to save the planet and they're on on their speaking tours as they're flying around in a jet uh all over the world to talk about saving the planet from carbon emissions sorry couldn't resist uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're but right you're right it's a, the number one hypocrisy <laughs> Yeah, so we've I've talked about this a lot as well, but it's always good to revisit uh, because there's constantly new research that's being published. I think more and more over the past five years, five to seven years, um, challenging the main what I think is now mainstream dogma around meat and animal products and climate change. Yeah, yeah. So I think the mainstream dogma, dogma. If I could pinpoint when the really bad news started, when the real bad misinformation started to get around, it was the cowspiracy film, which propagated the idea that cows generate over 50% of emissions, um, emissions of all kinds, you know, carbon. And that was debunked. The producers of that movie had to admit that they'd made a big mistake, um, although that wasn't publicized very much. No. That number, that 51% figure still is out there. People quote it. They quote it on placards when they're marching at universities or on the street. Uh, Some people still believe it. So that's one level of misinformation around all of this, which is polluting the debate. But the other problem is that there's so much else around the emissions from cows, the methane from cows, which is completely misunderstood. And That, again, doesn't surprise me terribly much because it's a very complex subject, much more complex than the media uh, tells us it is. So if we say that, you know, most people now accept that perhaps cows are uh, responsible for maybe 14, 15 percent of emissions. Okay, nobody really understands that the way we measure those emissions is completely unfavorable to livestock. So we measure those in terms of life cycles. So we blame the cows for everything from the, from the things they eat through to the transportation to the shop when they're when they become a food product. We don't realize that a lot of people don't realize that we don't do that with other sectors. So 
Transport is not measured that way. Transport is just measured in terms of um, emissions from the tailpipe. So when the FAO redid those numbers, they found that um, cows, if, if you put them on a level playing field, cows will be responsible for 5% of emissions versus 15% for, um, for uh, transport. So that's just, and that's at a global number level. Those numbers become much more exaggerated when you look at the US or the UK, where actually other sectors such as transport, industry, energy, all of those sectors add up to you know, 95% or more of emissions compared to what livestock is contributing. I'm talking rough numbers about the two countries, but that's more or less the way it is. So the fact that the media keeps reporting these very blunt numbers without any of the nuances has led people to think that cows are the enemy. So they don't even know that, um, you know, there are other sources of methane. I bet you if you stopped your average person on the street, they would say that methane only comes from cows. Uh, when in reality, it comes from industry, wetlands, uh, landfill, beaver dams, you know, it's uh, even peat bogs. Um, so it creates some funny old hypocrisies and inconsistencies in the debate, because on the one hand, we're saying we need to tear up a lot of the farmland, get the cows off the land to reduce methane emissions, but we need to reintroduce wetlands and re-wet the surface of the earth. Well. By doing those things, you're just going to be exchanging one kind of methane for another, right? Um, there, there's no recognition of, uh, of that. The other thing which I think is poorly recognized generally is the ability of well-managed livestock to actually sequester many of the emissions that they generate. So the whole notion of a biogenic cycle where the methane comes out for want of a, for a crude argument, out of the cows, uh, but is then cycled back in the ground through the action of those cows on the ground. So it, they, the cows actually create the conditions in the soil that allow that carbon to be sequestered. And when you look at the research in the past five years, it has come on leaps and bounds in terms of our understanding of how that process happens. And groups like Soil for Climate or the Savory Institute and many others around the world, 3M here in the UK, they are documenting that very, that process of sequestration more accurately. And I think the more we can get the numbers around that, uh, the more we'll be able to combat this misinformation that, that methane is only a one-way thing. It isn't a one-way thing. Yeah, this, this, this is another four podcasts, really, because it's, yeah. It's such a it's a complex topic. It's it's actually significantly more complex than the nutritional side of things I've found and I think so. and requires even more foundational understanding of, of the whole life cycle, what's going on, how the measurements are made, how the measurements are fudged, how the comparisons are cheated, like you said, using a full life cycle uh, in the case of raising cows and then only using tailpipe emissions in the case of, you know, transport as a category. And mm -hmm. there's been several studies now over the past few years that have shown that the regenerative farms they're using best practices are, you know, either carbon neutral or net carbon sinks. Like you said, they're actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. What's mm -hmm. more, 
we haven't talked about this yet, they are just such better places for animals to live. They're more humane. They're better places for people to work. They create better communities. You can just feel like there, there's a, I don't know how it is in the UK at this point because I haven't been there recently, but in the US there's just such a, a strong movement now towards regenerative animal husbandry. And if you go to any farmer's market, you're going to have stalls there that are selling 100% grass-fed, grass-finished meat. There's there's higher consumer demand for it. I know lots of young people that are actually mm -hmm. going back into farming and, and are really excited about this. There's a palpable movement in this direction because of all the factors that I just mentioned, not just because of the nutritional value, but because people understand that animals are a critical part of our ecosystem. And you just removing them from the food system entirely is incredibly short-sighted and problematic. Absolutely. I, the same thing is happening here. And I think one of the gauges of that movement, that increased appreciation of the power of regenerative, regenerative agriculture is a festival we have here called Groundswell, which is like many of your festivals across the US about bringing those people, those farmers together to understand how best to replenish the soil, raise animals in a human way, humane way, et cetera. And that has been going from strength to strength since uh, John Cherry and his brother founded it, I think five years ago. And it's just a powerhouse of ideas and, and thought leadership on, on that very topic. And I have noticed it since I moved, I moved out of London uh, where I'd lived for 35 years. We moved down here um, about eight months ago to Wiltshire, which is in the Southwest of England. And it's surrounded, I'm surrounded by sheep and cows. Livestock farming is a big thing here because you can't do anything else. You can't grow anything. The soil is, is such that it simply doesn't, doesn't grow. So all of these farmers, without exception that I meet and who are increasingly interested in me talking to them and helping them to share their ideas and vice versa, they are all very much in the thick of this organic, regenerative, soil-enhancing, biodiversity-enhancing type of farming. And of course, you then get the naysayers. So on an this is what we see at a practical level. You see it, I see it. The naysayers who are operating at the, what I would call the level of the academic model are sort of looking from above and they're not seeing this. What they're doing is, and, and, and there's a school at Oxford called the Leap School, which you'll be familiar with. Uh, one big name there is Marco Springman, who they love to produce models that show that all of this isn't really, all this kind of farming isn't really adding up too much. And it, anyway, we don't have enough land to do it. So they, they create an impossibility, which is not based in reality. And I think what we really need to do and my plea to policymakers and governments is listen to the farmers Factor them into the conversation, understand what they are seeing on their very own farms about how much they can produce of this regeneratively produced food and factor that into your thinking at least. Don't just be bamboozled by these numerical sort of high level fake models, basically, which is what they are. Yeah. Yeah. They're not holistic at all. And no. um, modeling is 
rarely an accurate substitute for on the ground knowledge. Um, and farming is something humans actually know a fair amount about and have been doing for quite a long time. <laughs> and it's an area where we're rediscovering methods that were traditionally used for s centuries, if not millennia, and can produce yields that surprise farmers who've been using industrial methods with mm -hmm. you know pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers. And there's, I think, an assumption often that that sort of, that that will produce higher yields, but uh, uh, you know, in some cases that's not true. And, and, that, and that's not even to mention factors like biodiversity, you know, where you have a farm that's regeneratively managed you, and using uh, rotation methods and different animals and different crops rather than just a monocrop. The amount of biodiversity that's present on a farm like that is astronomically higher than what you'll find in an industrial monocropping operation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, because I think that's an important factor too. And, and, and soil and topsoil and how the different methods of agriculture impact our soil. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's a, an American farmer who is also quite well known over here, Will Harris. You'll know his name, I'm sure. White Oak Pastures. Been on the podcast. He, yes, I'm sure he has. And I, one thing I love that he talks about is, uh, you know, everybody's on at him to rewild his land or for farmers like him to rewild some of their land. And he says, I'm already rewilding within my farm. My farm is a rewilded farm. So it has more species on it already than most other farms. And it shows the potential uh, for what can be done within the farming environment. So I think that what we have, unfortunately, is a the debate is, is, as usual, polarized. It's either rewilded or it's farming. Well, why can't we have both with this new form of farming, which harks back to some of the old, but also caters um, involved, sorry, um, capitalize on our new knowledge about soil, which is deepening and deepening. You know, there have been some great soil scientists in the in the world. And Christine Jones is one of them. And uh, Chris, um, uh, I've forgotten her other name, Christy, anyway, Kirsty, and she, these women and, and scientists like them, they are contributing to a much deeper knowledge of how soil is built and preserved. I just, again, it's a plea really for us to, to think in a more complex way, to think in a round or more holistic way. That doesn't tend to happen when governments get panicked, which is what I think they are now. And they spread, they're spreading that panic uh, down the line. In the quest for net zero, they are doing things like requiring um, farmers to cull 30% of their herd. This is happening in, in Ireland, for instance, as a quick way of getting a quick hit on the, on the emissions board, as it were, you know, quick reduction, again, in the model. Whether it'll transpire into any reduction which is real is another question. So what that is, is that's, that's really a good example of carbon tunnel vision, because by doing that, 
they may get that quick hit. They're doing absolutely nothing to enhance, enhance biodiversity on the farms that remain, nothing to encourage that, nothing to support farmers as they transition to more biodiverse farming. They're doing nothing at all for the long-term health of the land and the food system. So those kind of quick hit knee-jerk reactions are something we need to fight against. And I think people are, people are fighting back against those. It's like the ultimate vanity metric. You know, yeah. It's just something that they can point to and do a press conference about, but that is ultimately meaningless and not really uh, moving us toward where we need to, to get to. Mm. Well, Jane, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed your book. I think it's important and highly recommend reading it for folks who haven't already. It's called The Great Plant-Based Con. Where can people find out more about you and the book? Uh, I have a website, which is janereesbuxton.com. I'm, I'm updating it though, so bear with me. Um, but they can at least find you know what I've written about. They can listen to some of the podcasts I've done about the book. And I'm also on Twitter uh, for my sins. So that's again at Jane Buxton. And um, uh, sometimes I go in and out of Twitter because you have to be you have to have a lot of fortitude. Titration. This debate, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But um, I can be contacted that way. Um, if people DM me and it's a friendly DM, I I, I always respond. Great. Yeah, well, we, maybe we can compare death threats at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not for the faint of heart, uh, dipping no. your toe in these waters. And I'm sure Absolutely. both of us have had our share of hostile and downright, it, Ill, yeah. you know, um, yeah, criminal. misogynistic, I mean, yeah. horrendous, horrendous stuff. Yeah, I'm but sure also, you, you get even more than I do. Also a place of respect. love and support, right? Yeah. Twitter is also and has been a great place of learning and love and support around this issue. And I've had a lot of that too. So I can't be, I can't complain too much. Right. But anyway, hats off to you because you have had to put up with it for a long time. I'm, I have had a lot of respect for your work. And I'm so glad we got to talk after all these, after all these months. Yes, me too. So once again, uh, The Great Plant-Based Con, check it out. Highly recommend it. Great book to send to friends and family too who need a, a, a really um, comprehensive over, but accessible overview of the topics. There are a lot of books out there that go into detail on one aspect or the other, like nutritional or environmental. There aren't that many books that just provide a really great easy to follow overview. And I think that's really valuable and what we need. So thanks again, Jane, for writing the book. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.